0: New York, this is Democracy Now!. The White House has announced a tentative deal to avert a nationwide rail strike. We'll get the latest. Then to Pakistan, where a third of the country is underwater.
1: What is happening in Pakistan demonstrates the sheer inadequacy of the global response to the climate crisis and the betrayal and injustice. At the heart of it.
0: As the death toll from catastrophic flooding in Pakistan nears 1,500, we'll go to Islamabad and Karachi to look at how the climate emergency is upending the lives of tens of millions. Then to Ukraine, as Russia continues to bomb civilian infrastructure following Ukraine's successful offensive in the Kharkiv region. We'll speak to the artist Molly Crabapple, just back from Ukraine about her latest piece for the New York Review of Books in the Shadow of the Invasion. We'll also speak to a Ukrainian motorcyclist she features in her article.
2: Since I came back to Ukraine after the war started, um, I was really impressed with uh, with my people, with the Ukrainians that I started to meet. Uh, We've never been so united as a nation before. And since the war started, every single person, every single citizen of Ukraine, be it a soldier, a volunteer, a business person, a business lady, we are getting united in order to support our country and to contribute to our victory. All that and more
0: coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Now! democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Unions representing railroad workers have reached a tentative agreement with their employers to avert a potential strike that was set to start just after midnight tonight threatening to bring passenger and freight rail service across the United States to a halt. The White House announced the agreement in a statement early this morning, calling it a, quote, "...important win for our economy and the American people," unquote. The deal must still be ratified by union members. The breakthrough came after Vermont independent Senator Bernie Sanders blocked a bid by Senate Republicans to pass a bill that would have imposed contract terms on the union's.
3: Right now, if you work in the freight rail industry, one of the most grueling and dangerous jobs in America, you are entitled to a grand total of zero sick days. Part of the contract negotiations, the rail workers are asking for 15
0: paid sick days. This is not a radical idea. The Washington Post reports the proposed contract meets one of the workers' key demands, quote, the ability to take days off for medical care without being subject to discipline. We'll get the latest after headlines. In Minnesota, 15,000 nurses are returning to work today after three days spent on picket lines in the largest private sector nurses' strike in U.S. history. The nurses want pay increases to keep ahead of spiraling inflation. They say dangerously low staffing levels and pandemic burnout have led to low morale that's driving nurses from the profession. Minnesota Nurses Association President Mary Turner joined picketers outside a children's hospital in Minneapolis Wednesday. This is a fight for our very profession. And if you guys haven't heard the study out at Illinois University, 51 percent of the nurses potentially will leave the bedside as of next year. 51 percent that is a public health crisis. And so we're pushing for a contract that will draw nurses back to the bedside, because we have plenty of nurses, but we have nurses that don't want to work in the conditions that are out there. And I I could say this message to every nurse in every state, and they'd understand what I'm talking about. The Biden administration says it'll transfer $3.5 billion in frozen Afghan funds to a trust fund in Switzerland, which will use the money to help stabilize Afghanistan's economy. This comes just weeks after a federal judge recommended against efforts by victims of the September 11th attacks to sieve half of the $7 billion in Afghanistan's foreign reserves frozen by the U.S. humanitarian by the U.S. Humanitarian aid groups are calling for all the assets seized by the U.S. to be returned to Afghanistan's central bank, saying the money is critical to mitigating against a humanitarian crisis. The U.N. says some $6 million million Afghans are at risk of famine. More than 95 percent of the population is not getting enough to eat. In Ukraine, more than 100 homes in the city of Rih were damaged by floodwaters after Russian missiles struck a dam Wednesday, causing a river to overflow its banks. Elsewhere, reports of torture emerging in formerly Russian-occupied areas reclaimed by Ukraine's military this month. One former prisoner told the BBC he was held by Russians for more than 40 days, tortured with electrocution, forced to hear the screams of other prisoners. This comes amid its growing signs of dissent in Russia. More than 30 Russian municipal deputies have signed a petition demanding the resignation of President Vladimir Putin. Meanwhile, some public officials are now calling Russia's invasion a war, instead of a special military operation, as the Kremlin demands. On Wednesday, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres spoke by phone with Putin. After the call, Guterres said the near-term chances of a peace deal are minimal and that a ceasefire is nowhere in sight. Today, President Putin is meeting with Chinese leader Xi Jinping in Uzbekistan in a summit meant to showcase growing ties between Moscow and Beijing. Back in the United States, a sweeping abortion ban goes into effect in Indiana today, making only extremely narrow exceptions for medical emergencies, rape and incest. The ban is being challenged in court by the ACLU and several abortion care providers, with hearings set to start September 19th. In Ohio, a judge has temporarily blocked the state's ban on abortions after six weeks of pregnancy, saying the right to abortion is protected under Ohio's Constitution. The decision restores broad abortion access for at least the next two weeks in Ohio. Meanwhile, a Louisiana woman, who is barred from aborting a non-viable fetus in her home state, has received an abortion in New York. Nancy Davis traveled from her hometown of Baton Rouge to a New York City clinic, a nearly 2,500 mile round trip journey, after learning her fetus had a fatally flawed skull and would be unable to survive. Davis spoke to reporters ahead of her trip.
4: The doctors told me that my baby would die shortly after birth. They told me that I should terminate the pregnancy because of the state of Louisiana's abortion ban they could not perform the procedure. Basically they said I had to carry my baby to bury my baby. I want you to imagine what it's been like to continue this pregnancy for another six weeks after this diagnosis. This is not fair to me and it should not happen to any other woman.
0: In Chicago, a federal jury has voted to convict R. Kelly on six charges of coercing minors into sexual activity and of producing sex tapes involving a minor. R. Kelly is already serving a 30-year prison sentence after a jury in Brooklyn convicted him of racketeering and sex trafficking charges last year. Kelly's conviction in Chicago will add a minimum of 10 years to that sentence. This conviction comes 14 years after Kelly was infamously acquitted on similar charges. A teenage girl who killed her alleged rapist has been sentenced by an Iowa court to five years probation in order to pay his family $150,000. Piper Lewis was 15 years old when she stabbed 37-year-old Zachary Brooks to death. Police and officials agree Lewis was forcibly trafficked to men for sex after running away from home, including at knife point. Lewis says one of those men was Brooks, who raped her multiple times in the weeks before his death. Lewis, who is now 17, pled guilty to involuntary manslaughter and willful injury last year charges punishable by up to 10 years in jail. Iowa does not have so-called safe harbor laws in place that give underage trafficking victims at least some level of criminal immunity. An ex-aide to Andrew Cuomo has sued the former New York governor for sexual harassment. Charlotte Bennett filed the lawsuit Wednesday in a federal court in New York City, alleging Cuomo repeatedly made inappropriate sexual advances, then sought to smear her reputation when she publicly revealed the harassment. Bennett's lawsuit is the second from at least 11 women who say Cuomo unlawfully groped, kissed or otherwise sexually harassed them. In Sweden, four right-wing parties have agreed to form a new coalition government after winning a narrow majority in Sunday's parliamentary elections. The anti-immigrant far-right Sweden Democrats party won 73 seats, with more than 20 percent of the vote, becoming the second-largest party in Sweden's parliament. The party emerged out of Sweden's neo-Nazi movement of the late 80s. Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson announced her resignation after her government's defeat. The election result also shows us that the Sweden Democrats, with a big margin, is Sweden's second biggest party. And I know that many Swedes are worried. Many have already met hatred and threats, and even more are worried about becoming a target and hesitate to express themselves in public. I see your concern, and I share it. Meanwhile in Italy, polls show a coalition led by the far right is poised to win national elections September 25th. That is, the leader of the neo-fascist Brothers of Italy Party, Giorgia Maloney, positioned to become Italy's first far-right leader since Benito Mussolini. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman, joined by Democracy Now! co-host,
5: Nermeen Sheik. Hi, Nermeen. Hi, Amy. And welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, negotiators for railroad companies
0: and workers have reached a tentative deal to avert a potential strike that was set to start at 12.01 Eastern time, just after midnight tonight, and could have shut down rail service across the United States. This comes after Labor Secretary Marty Walsh met with union leaders and railroad company negotiators for some 20 hours into the early morning today with President Biden calling in personally around 9 p.m. Wednesday night to the meeting. A railroad worker strike could upset the country's supply chain of food and much more, potentially causing prices to skyrocket. It would also shut down travel for long-distance passenger trains, which use the same tracks as freight rail. The White House announced the agreement in a statement early this morning calling it an important win for our economy and the American people. The deal must still be ratified by union members. The Washington Post reports it meets one of the workers' key demands, quote, "...the ability to take days off for medical care without being subject to discipline." Washington Post reporter Lauren Cowrie Gurley wrote on Twitter, workers will receive voluntary assigned days off and a single additional paid day off. They previously did not receive sick days. The agreement provides members with ability to take unpaid days for medical care without being subject to attendance policies. For more, we go to Reno, Nevada. We're joined by Ron Kamenkow, a locomotive engineer who's worked in both freight and passenger service and first hired out as a brakeman with Conrail in 1996. He's the organizer for the Railroad Workers United, previously served as the secretary and general secretary of the RWU, which is an inter-union cross-craft solidarity caucus of railroad workers across North America. We welcome you to Democracy Now!, Ron. Uh, this news came out a few hours before Democracy Now! went on the air. Um, can you talk about this tentative deal? What was at stake? Um, for the workers and for rail across the country.
6: Well, good morning, Amy. It's, uh, it's pretty early out here on the, on the West Coast. I did get the news. I think all of us are now trying to uh, make some sense of what the tentative agreement is. Without actually seeing that agreement in writing, it's very hard to make any kind of statement of, of support or opposition to it. Uh, It does sound like the three major sticking points uh, for the operating craft unions were these basically three issues. Uh, Most over-the-road freight train operators in this country, engineers and conductors, have traditionally not had any paid sick leave. Uh, So that was issue number one. It sounds like the tentative agreement grants a single sick leave day, uh, which is a a bit of an insult one would think Uh, most workers have 10 to 15 sick days i believe uh so it sounds like the tentative agreement has one single uh paid sick leave day uh also it sounds like we will not be penalized now for taking time off work uh for medical appointments uh and then last but not least um it sounds like there is going to be some sort of semblance of a schedule. And that probably is the key here because railroad workers traditionally uh, have not had a schedule. We're on call subject to a two-hour call uh, 24-7. And it seems like to bring us into the modern era, we should have some semblance of a work schedule. Now, it says uh, what I read, voluntary assigned days off. It's hard to say exactly what that means, and the devil's in the details. The rank and file will have the last word, and so it will be circulated amongst the membership in the coming days and weeks. And uh, we'll have a much better idea, probably by this afternoon, exactly what this tentative agreement that was brokered holds for railroad workers.
5: RON, could you uh, explain uh, when unions started opposing these conditions? I mean, some of the things that uh, they've been protesting, uh, uh, what you've just pointed out, uh, that uh, workers were penalized for uh, uh, taking—for having medical appointments, or taking sick leave. I mean, the fact that there was absolutely no paid sick leave. How long have these conditions been protested? And, And also, how many unions were involved?
6: I'll start with the first question. Um, this, this culmination that that's we're seeing has been 30 years in the making. I entered the industry 26 years ago and I was amazed at the lack of time off, the number of hours that we would work. Uh, and you could make good money. This was a job traditionally that you could, uh, you could hold with a high school uh, graduate and, um, There was a time when railroad workers actually had the ability to do what's called mark off. If you were a brakeman, conductor, engineer, and uh, take a week or two off to take care of business, get some rest, um, enjoy a new romance, go to Florida. We lost all that. And now it's lean and mean. They do not want one more worker on the payroll than absolutely necessary. So. We lost the rights to be able to work when we want and not when we don't want to work. Uh, And that has been getting more and more restrictive with the passing years. We've never had sick time, but recently it it wasn't really an issue because the right to work when you wanted to and not when you didn't want to was considered one of the perks and benefits of a a railroad job in the operating crafts that has gone away completely and been replaced by harsh attendance policies. And this trend has accelerated, particularly under the new operating plan that has most all of the big class one railroads uh, in its its grips right now, which is this thing called precision scheduled railroading, which is just a fancy way of saying lean and mean production, we're going to cut maintenance, we're gonna cut costs, we're gonna cut staffing and otherwise do whatever we can to uh, pump up the stock price, uh, increase the uh, profit, uh, profitability of the carrier, uh, reduce the operating ratio and so forth. And one of those ways to do that is assumed is to get more work out of the existing workforce. And it's made for a completely miserable situation uh, in recent years. It was already bad 25 years ago when I was in the freight industry. And so what we're seeing now is workers with 5, 10, and 20 years seniority leaving the industry, uh, something that was unheard of even uh, 10 years ago, um, is now very, very commonplace. Um, As for the second question, uh, unfortunately, we have 12 unions on the railroad. Uh, We started to organize early on. Railroading was a very dangerous industry in the 19th century. And so railroad workers were some of the first to organize, but we organized along craft union lines. This quickly was understood by many union leaders and most rank and filers that was quite inefficient. Unfortunately, in 1926, the Railway Labor Act kind of ossified this archaic system. And to this day, we're still left with 12 different unions all at the bargaining table, Uh, who have the ability to cut deals, reach tentative agreements uh, on their own. And some of these unions actually have a very small number of members. Uh, So at the end of the day, the whole bargaining uh, of railroad workers would be made much more streamlined. And I believe railroad workers would have a lot more power if we could go into bargaining uh, with these Fortune 500 corporations, the class one carriers, Uh, united as one single organization. But unfortunately, that's not the case.
5: And Ron, the deal still has to be uh, ratified by union members. Uh, Do you think that's likely?
6: It's hard to say. There's a lot of discontent out there. Railroad workers believe that this was our time. There was conditions in our favor. The labor movement is on the resurgence. Uh, The supply chains are a mess. The rail carriers are desperate for employees. Um, there's a lot of momentum on our side, and there's a lot of deep anger and resentment. The fact that the rail carriers have made record profits for much of the last 25 years. Uh, the rail carriers actually made record profits right through the recession of 2008 and nine. They made record profits right through the pandemic. And today, <clears throat> well... Excuse me. As we speak. There are probably hundreds of freight trains standing idle awaiting for rested crews uh, because the rail industry cut to the bone so deep that they simply do not have enough employees, conductors and engineers uh, and also machinists and maintenance workers to keep things together uh, to properly operate the railroad. And yet they're still making uh, record profits right through this debacle. And so it would seem that one of the ways to alleviate the crisis in rail right now uh, would be to advance workers' conditions to make the job once again more pleasing, to retain employees, and to make it easier to recruit. Very few people want to work for the railroad now. In the old days railroad workers would advise their children to get jobs on the railroad that pretty much is a thing of the past
0: and finally it's, it's Ron, very unlikely the significance of this going right to the top I mean, for this negotiation to go on for 20 hours uh, with Marty Walsh, the, transport, um, t- the um, um, secretary of labor, um, then Biden calling in uh, at 9 o'clock, uh, considered the most pro-labor president in history, uh, what this meant for um, the deal to be sealed this morning—I shouldn't say sealed, because the rank-and-file decide that in the end—but for those—for those at the table to say they have a tentative agreement at just after 5 Eastern time this morning.
6: I'm sorry, Amy. What is the question?
0: The significance of Biden weighing in. And do you think that? He weighed in on the side of the workers. I mean, enormous pressure brought since, what, one-third of the freight in this country is carried by rail, not to mention Amtrak canceling all its long-term um, uh, 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 train itineraries uh, for people traveling in, in passenger rail. So, the stakes were extremely high. Does that put more pressure on the owners or on the workers?
6: Well, I think there's a huge amount of pressure on the workers right now after all of this um, kind of circus that uh, to vote for this tentative agreement. There's always this idea that, you know, workers are greedy, they're overpaid and so forth. If you look at the demands here, of course, they're not really very economic. We're talking about having some semblance of a schedule. We're talking about sick leave, which most workers in highly developed industries and highly unionized industries uh, have had for, for decades, uh, dating back into the mid of the last uh, century. Um, and then, of course, being able to negotiate attendance policies, that was another issue that apparently uh, has been placated by simply saying, you're not going to be penalized uh, for taking time off for medical uh, reasons. But that leaves the harsh attendance policy on Many carriers still in effect. So all I can say is the rank and file will have the final word. There is a huge level of discontent amongst much of the rank and file. As we noticed just yesterday, the rank and file of the machinist union, which was the first set of union officials to agree to a tentative agreement, the rank and file did vote that tentative agreement down. So it remains to be seen what the conductors' union and the engineers' union and the others do uh, in the coming days and And, weeks.
0: And we'll continue to follow this closely. Ron Kamenko, we want to thank you very much for being with us for Locomotive Engineers, worked in freight and passenger service organizer for the Railroad Workers United. Coming up, we go to Ukraine. Um, We'll speak with the artist Molly Crabapple. She's just back from Ukraine about our latest piece for the New York Review of Books, In the Shadow of Invasion. And we'll speak to a Ukrainian motorcyclist she features in her piece. Stay with us.
3: I've been working on the railroad all the live long day. I've been working on the railroad just to pass the time away. Can't you hear the whistle blowing, rise up so early in the morning, can't you hear the captain shout? Someone's in the kitchen, I
0: know. Someone's in the kitchen with Diana Sturumman on the old banjo. I've been working on the railroad by Pete Seeger. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Ukraine's accusing Russia of bombing a dam in the southern city of Kryvyi where Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky was born. Parts of the city have been evacuated due to flooding. This marks the latest Russian attack on civilian infrastructure after Ukrainian forces recaptured over 3,000 square miles of territory from Russia during a counteroffensive. On Wednesday Zelensky visited the city of Izium which Ukrainian forces retook over the weekend. We're joined now by the New York artist and author Molly Crabapple. She recently returned from Ukraine, where she traveled across the country drawing sketches of what she observed. Several of those sketches appear as part of her article just out in the New York Review of Books. It's headlined In the Shadow of Invasion. In her article, Molly uh, talks about and draws about her meeting with Anna Grishishkina, a Ukrainian journalist who is a full time motorcycle traveler riding around the world for the past nine years, uh, trying to set a record um, uh, in the Guinness Book of World Records for the uh, motorcycle female rider who traveled the furthest. She returned to Ukraine when the war started. Molly Crabapple joins us from New York. Anna is with us from Kyiv, the capital of Ukraine. Molly, talk about about this journey you took. Uh, talk about um, why you chose to focus your enormous talent, your illustrations and your writing, on what's happening in Ukraine right now.
7: Thank you so much for having me here, Amy. I, I chose to travel to Ukraine at the beginning of August because history was happening there. Ukrainians were writing their own history, and I wanted to document it. Um, I had known. Ukraine primarily from my research for my next book as a place where some of the greatest cataclysms of the 20th century had happened, where millions of people were killed in um, a planned famine in the 1930s, um, the place where the Germans essentially began the Holocaust, also the place that led to the dissolution of the Soviet Union by voting for its independence in 1991. And because of this, I wanted to see— with my own eyes, how Ukrainians were writing and defining their own future in the face of this idiotic and unprovoked invasion. Um, I traveled all over the country. I didn't go to the front lines at all, but I went to Odessa, to Kiev, to Lviv. And with Anna, I also went to uh, Borodyanka and Bucha. When I was there, I saw a country that was fighting so hard to—to preserve its independence, to preserve its identity, and also to preserve a sense of normal life and just to, like, go about your day and have some beauty and sit at a cafe and be able to live even when war had extracted so many costs from every single person.
5: Anna, could you talk about your your meeting uh, with Molly and what kind of assistance your decision to go back to Ukraine uh, once the war began, and what kind of aid and assistance you've been providing uh, to people who've lost their homes, uh, people who've had to flee their homes, and whose homes have been destroyed?
2: Thank you so much for having me here and for the opportunity to um, to talk about Ukraine and to share my experience in Ukraine. Uh, yes, I've been traveling around the world for the past nine years on my motorcycle. Uh, but before well, broke in Ukraine, I decided to come back because, um, I just wanted to be with my, with my country and with my people and to contribute as much as I could, uh, for the cause in Ukraine and uh, to fight. Um, honestly, I didn't know what exactly I could do, you know. So I was talking with uh, many of my local friends and with the military people who had experience. And one of my friends, he was the commander of one of the voluntary battalions uh, in Ukraine and Kiev, and he said that um, you just come and we will find we will find you a job to do. And without thinking twice, I came back. I joined. This military battalion, I went through the uh, basic training, so I learned uh, some uh, basics of uh, combat, of uh, tactic medicine, of shooting, of using the weapons, some psychological moments, etc. And it was really, really useful for me as a person who had no military experience at all. Uh, What I'm doing at the moment, uh, because I'm a traveler and I'm a rider, so I decided actually to use this same skill um, for Ukraine. So what I'm doing now, I'm traveling around Ukraine everywhere and even closer to the front lines. I'm meeting people. I'm collecting the stories of the war and I'm recording interesting facts and just to show to the world uh, how Ukraine is managing and how people are surviving and how they are managing actually to keep the normal life despite everything and to be the huge source of inspiration for the whole world because we are protecting the values of freedom and democracy. And in this sense, we are not just fighting for our land, you know, and for our values, but actually for the values of the whole world. And uh, we as Ukrainians really appreciate the support of the whole world Um, of all the people from many countries from the United States, who actually come physically to our country to support us, to support financially, morally, with their knowledge. And that's why I was really happy to meet Molly here in Kiev and to spend a couple of days with her and to travel a little bit uh, with her to the outskirts of Kiev and to different towns. And I was really impressed with, with her passion and with her dedication, with her talent. Uh, that she used to show to the world how Ukrainian is and how Ukrainians are. So um, I really appreciate that. And I really appreciate every foreigner that I met here in Ukraine. Anna Roshishkina, I I also want to say how well
0: you're doing right now, given that you have COVID. uh, So, I thank you for your energy. I wanted to play a clip of one of the civilians you spoke to during your travels in Ukraine, this woman named Katarina, who lost everything in the war but still works in her garden and plants vegetables.
4: They bombed the house on the 18th of March. We left by that time. And we came back when Ukrainians took over. You see, the car is almost new.
6: Fiat burnt down. What can you do? But
4: I have the garden here, planting everything beetroot, cabbage, carrots, everything.
2: So you planted all of this now, after the house was burnt?
4: Yes, in spring, after coming back. You see everything here real garden, but no house.
0: I wanted to go back to Mali Crab Apple. It's women like these you met across the country as you rode on the motorcycle with Anna. Um, Describe that um, journey that you took and uh, the places where you mainly focused that you were most affected by.
7: I have to give a small correction. Uh, while I, I was on the back of Konstantin's motorcycle to uh, visit Borodyanka most of my trip, unfortunately, I was only traveling by train and not anything so cool as being on the back of Anna's motorcycle. <laughs> uh, though, you know, fingers crossed for the future. Maybe you could break what a Guinness World Book of Record together. <laughs> most most drawings drawn on the back of a motorcycle. Uh, Katya was one of the women who uh, impressed me the most, actually. You have this working-class woman who saved her whole life going to Poland to work, doing like hard physical stuff, and um, everything she owned was destroyed by the Russian bombing. She had to stay with her husband in a cellar that was—it was—I feel wrong even calling it a cellar. It was like a little, like, root cellar where you'd store pickles or something. Uh, and. Yet, despite all of this, she was growing vegetables and she grew dill in the crater where the missile hit in a pattern to emphasize how it looked. And one of the things about war and about covering war is that it's the same in many places. Um, I, you know, briefly went to Azaz, which is a city just over the Turkish border in Syria that was bombed a lot by the Assad regime in 2014. I went to Gaza as well. And what war looks like is war looks like blackened buildings uh, that are half-fallen down, with bits of people's lives hanging from the side, but it also looks like tough, working-class old women standing next to the rubble that used to be their homes and offering you the most delicious dessert you ever had in your life, because they still want to be hospitable to a guest.
5: MOLLY, I want to go back to uh, the history that you pointed to uh, Ukraine as the center of uh, so many calamitous events in the 20th century, including the uh, created uh, famine, the so-called terror famine of the 1930s. Two, uh what's happening today and what happened most notably in the Second World War. Among the places you visited was Babi Yar, where tens of thousands of people, uh, the vast majority Jews, uh, were shot dead during the Second World War and what became known as the, the Holocaust, as part of this Holocaust by bullets. Could you describe uh, or what you saw there and what you learned of that history, uh, what's happened to that site?
7: Uh, Baba Yar is a park now. Uh, me and Anna actually we went together. I mean, it's it's a bit hard for me to talk about. You, when you go there, it's like this huge ravine where a hundred thousand people um, were forced to strip naked and murdered, and you feel like the ground is crying out with all of their ghosts. Um, right now, it's a beautiful place, uh, though the. A Soviet uh, plaque on the memorial just says 100,000 citizens of uh, Kiev, Uh, not that they were Jewish. But um, for me, what—something that was very personally meaningful was um, that despite the Holocaust and despite the murder of the vast majority of Jews in Ukraine, there is a Jewish community still, um, of which, obviously, uh, President Zelensky is the most famous member. And there's also a community of people that are Jewish, not Jewish, who are— passionately committed to um, keeping uh, Ukrainian Yiddish culture alive. Uh, one moment that will always stay in my heart is I visited the apartment of an 82-year-old woman named Tatiana in Lviv. She was a Polish woman. She had fled from Warsaw as a little girl. And uh, when she retired as a nurse, she devoted the last 20 years of her life to uh, studying and performing Yiddish music. Uh, She and a small band of uh, musicians, many of them Jewish, were rehearsing. and. They didn't just rehearse, like, the old Yiddish standards about thieves and about lovers, about parents. They also uh, translated Ukrainian patriotic songs into Yiddish. And Tatiana has a daughter that's in the armed forces right now. I feel like uh, women like Tatiana or uh, like another woman I met there, a Jewish refugee from Luhansk, uh, the city occupied by Russia, um, women like these, they show the um, multiethnic identity of Ukraine, that it's possible to be a Ukrainian and be proud to be a Ukrainian and to support your country at this terrible time while also being Polish or also being Jewish.
0: You know, it's interesting, Molly. After the UN Climate Summit in Katowice, Poland, I went to Lviv um, and then to Rovno, about an hour away, uh, where my grandmother was born in 1897. She was a woman of three centuries. Died at 108, just in 2005. And we visited the um, the Susenki Forest Massacre, the second largest massacre in Ukraine in World War II, where half the Jewish population of Rovno uh, was Orivna. I think, as it's said, in Ukraine, was killed. Um, can you talk about the movement in Ukraine to revive Yiddish and kite, Yiddish culture?
7: Sure. So, I think a lot of it um, has to do with, you know, links that are made between um, American institutions like uh, Evo in New York, which has provided tons and tons and tons of free classes. Uh, To um, Ukrainian Yiddishists. Um, There's also a Yiddish institute in Kiev um, at the university there. There's a statue of Sholem Aleichem. There are amazing musicians. I I recommend everyone Google the Alibi Sisters, two of the most glamorous women I have ever seen in my life, Um, Ukrainian women that are trying to resurrect the Barry Sisters for a new generation. Um, There's also. there there was an elderly Holocaust survivor whose name I'm forgetting, but um, there was a documentary about him, uh, Boris Boris Dorfman, a mensch, I think, about his uh, stubborn and passionate uh, love of Lviv and his insistence on staying there um, for the rest of his life and on keeping this language that he loved alive. And there's something yeah. about it, you know, being in the city that, you know, was a third Jewish before the Holocaust. Um, And hearing that language spoken, that kind of you know broke my heart. And too, it was so beautiful.
5: And Molly, just to say that that uh, what you witnessed there—the attempts to revive uh, the language of Yiddish—85 percent of the approximately six million Jews who were killed in the Holocaust were Yiddish speakers. And, and finally, uh, Anna, we heard earlier, we covered in our headlines that Putin has said, uh, Secretary General, uh, U.N. Secretary General Guterres said, after speaking to Putin, that uh, there is no possibility of a, a, a resolution at the moment. What are Ukrainians saying? What uh, uh, prospects are there for a negotiated peace now?
2: Well, you know, um, I would say that most of Ukrainians, we are looking forward to our victory, a full victory without any compromises, because we want our territory back. And all those uh, territories that have been occupied by Russians since actually 2014, because even though the full-scale war started since 24th of February of 2022, but actually the war with Russia has been going on for uh, for more than eight years. You know, it just, it wasn't much on the news all these years. It was somewhere in the East, so to say. Uh, but now the whole world uh, can see, um, yeah, what Russia's intentions is. So uh, we are not ready to compromise. Uh, we are just, uh, we are waiting and we are hoping, and we are actually, we are confident in our victory. And um, the success of the army, like since uh the beginning of September this year in the eastern direction and uh, many territories that have been liberated, they really give us hope that uh, the victory will be ours, and uh, it will happen quite soon. So, um, I would say that this is the position of the most of Ukrainians, especially after all the destruction, after all the lost lives that Russians took from us. Um, I don't think that any compromise is possible at all. And especially that Uh, They don't keep their promises. They don't keep their words, you know. So what is the point? Uh, There's been so many lies going on uh, from their side. So um, again, as I say, um, we are looking forward to our victory, to the victory of Ukraine.
0: Well, we want to thank you so much, both of you, for being with us. Anna Grishishkina, a Ukrainian journalist and motorcycle traveler, now back to be in her country, speaking to us from Kyiv, and again, a speedy recovery from COVID. And Molly Crabapple, thank you so much for joining us. We will link to your piece in the New York Review of Books, In the Shadow of the Invasion. This is Democracy Now! When we come back, we go to Pakistan, where a third of the country is underwater after catastrophic flooding caused by by the climate catastrophe. Stay with us. Klineklanenach music by Mozart, performed by the Rivna Symphony inside a mall in Rivna. Um, I recorded it on my phone in 2018, in December. They were trying to get people in the mall to come to the symphony that night, and the musicians popped up from the salon, from the Apple Store, from everywhere, and they just came together and started playing. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheik. Nearly 1,500 people have now died in Pakistan, where catastrophic flooding has left a third of the country underwater. The dead include 530 children. Tens of millions have been displaced by the floods, which washed away homes, bridges, hospitals, schools, while destroying massive amounts of farmland. On Wednesday, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres issued another dire warning about the climate emergency days after he returned from Pakistan.
1: What is happening in Pakistan demonstrates the sheer inadequacy of the global response to the climate crisis and the betrayal and injustice at the heart of it. Whether it is Pakistan, the Horn of Africa, the Sahel, small islands or least developed countries, the world's most vulnerable, who did nothing to cause this crisis, are paying a horrific price for decades of intransigence by big emitters.
0: Pakistan estimates about 30 million people have been displaced by the floods. This is a mother from Pakistan's Sindh province named Aisha Arbelo, who gave birth last week after being forced to flee her home.
5: The
4: flood came to our village and it swept away everything. I felt labor pains and my father brought me here to the evacuee camp on a motorcycle. The labor pains continued and then my father took me to a hospital where I had to undergo a C-section to deliver the baby. Sometimes we don't have food for two days. I don't have milk to breastfeed my child. I am sick and my child is also sick. I have now got medicine
0: from the hospital. God willing, my child will be all right now. We go now to Karachi, Pakistan, where we're joined by Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, a Pakistani artist whose work centers on the Indus River. uh, Recently, traveled across his home province of Sindh to witness the devastation caused by the floods. He's named after his grandfather, the former prime minister Zulfikar Ali Bhutto. Uh, Welcome to Democracy Now. Um, Can you talk about this journey you took and what you found? This is just. Hard to fathom, a third of your country is underwater right now.
8: Um, Thank you so much for having me on the show. Yes, it's incredibly overwhelming, um, just the thought of it, but even the sight of it. I had to go see it to believe it. When the catastrophe started, um, well, really the monsoon started in June and they just didn't stop. So by early August, I was getting calls from southern Punjab um, and Balochistan from people who were just desperate, and they needed um, and they needed help, and I wasn't sh- quite sure how to provide that help. And then calls came from my own house, um, our own ancestral home, our own ancestral village in Larkana. So, of course, I went. It was still raining, um, and the roads were completely flooded. Um, there was water just pouring in. And the thing with the floods is that there's not only water... Coming from the river, there's also water coming from above you. There's also water coming from the mountains. So there's there's all these pressure points of water just building and building and building and building. Um, um, and within my village uh, itself, we had to wade through three or four kilometers of water that was up to our waist in order to reach the first dry piece of land.
5: Fikar could you describe what the conditions are now? I mean, there are not only concerns about, obviously, the fact that so many people's lives have been devastated, uh, homes destroyed, uh, people forced to flee, but also now there's so much water that's just standing uh, that there are concerns about uh, the spread of diseases like malaria and dengue.
8: Uh, Malaria and dengue, there is already uh, what I think we can call an epidemic. Um, Many, many people are getting sick from malaria and dengue. As you maybe know, uh, dengue has no cure. You simply have to weather it out. Malaria does have a cure, but there is also no supply locally of of, of malaria medicine. So uh, we've had to go and set up medical camps to deliver malaria medicine to people to deliver uh, chlorine tablets because the water is so putrid and polluted. One of the uh, immediate effects of the flood was, in fact, gastroenteritis. That was prob- probably uh, within the first uh, few days. Fungal diseases were in the first few days as well. Um, uh, you know, children, um, malnourished children, are not able to. Uh, heal and recover quickly from skin diseases. And that was something we noticed as well, is that not only were there waterborne diseases happening and sewage was mixing with drinking water, um, but there were already preconditions um, such as malnourishment present within our society that was actually um, preventing a lot of these children from naturally healing.
0: Zofikar, um according to the Climate Change Risk Index last year, um, Pakistan ranked eighth among countries most vulnerable to the climate crisis, despite contributing less than one percent to global carbon emissions. Can you talk about the issue of climate reparations and the connection of what's happening to the climate catastrophe around the world?
8: Yes. Yes. Thank you for asking that. One, I think it's infuriating, of course, just to know that fact, just to know that figure as a Pakistani living in Pakistan um, and seeing this catastrophe unfold and how overwhelming it is. Now, the the idea of reparations, of course, the most reparative measure would be to cancel Pakistan's debt. Pakistan owes a huge debt to the IMF and World Bank, um, as well as various other countries who have funded huge mega projects, such as dams and barrages that have actually exacerbated the situation and stop the river's natural flow, and stop the natural flow of of the mountains. They have also funded highways and bridges that have done the exact same thing. Um, 50 dams, more than 50 dams have actually uh, uh, broken uh, during these floods, resulting in even more catastrophe, and we owe these people debt. Now in terms of uh, reparations beyond that, we have to think about, um, is the Pakistani government accountable? Can the Pakistani government... Be held accountable? Where will these reparations go? Will they go into the hands of the 30 plus million people who have uh, been displaced or will they simply go back into the system um, um, that, uh, that exacerbated this situation? Um, there's been some talk of debt swap, that the IMF should fund infrastructural projects Um, uh, uh, just to help the country, but uh, the IMF's infrastructural projects have been historically, both within Pakistan and outside of Pakistan, their projects have been anti-poor, anti-nature, anti-indigenous and anti-people. So I wonder if they've had a change of heart, Um, and if they have, maybe that is a solution to, um, to this climate reparations discussion.
5: I want to uh, ask about the uh, crisis, the worsening crisis in Pakistan's uh, health care and medical facilities as they try to cope under these horrific conditions with uh, increasing numbers of people uh, seeking help. Uh, patients in makeshift hospitals uh, have been getting sick from a lack of drinking water.
8: Um yes, that's that's the primary concern. When we when we go and we and, and we think, okay, let's bring medicine, we also have to think, okay, now we need to also bring water because there's no safe drinking water. Um, um I've been several times and every time I go back, of course, we have to drive through the floods. Um and the the water went from a sort of clear bluish gray to a, a sort of reddish brown, and there was this putrid smell everywhere. We have to keep in mind that also a million, almost a million cattle have died, um, and the highways are littered with the bodies of dead water buffaloes, which is somewhat ironic, given that water buffaloes love to swim in water, but um, but they've just been swept away, um, uh, the, the bodies of dead donkeys, the bodies of dead goats and sheep. So there's, and, and of course, there's the human tragedy of it Also, people have, have have lost everything. And in order to deliver medicine, they need water to take that medicine. Um, So this is also a a challenge that many, many people are facing uh, right now.
5: Say, who exactly is uh, uh, providing uh, the most uh, assistance? I mean, we hear about the Pakistani military, which, of course, is vastly overfunded and the most uh, powerful institution there. But what about—first what? First of all, what exactly are they doing? Uh, and compare what they're doing now compared to uh, uh, what they did uh, uh, during and after the 2010 floods. And what about uh, NGOs that are working in the country?
8: Yeah. Well, you know, the the Pakistani military, I have to say, was quite late to respond, um, though they were probably out of, if we're talking about the difference between government and military, they were definitely uh, the first of the two. I remember seeing the military on my fourth day um, while I was there in Larkana. That's not to say that they were not there, but that was the day that they were most visible, and that was when the clouds had cleared a bit and the rain had gone away. Um, the military was much more active in 2010, which was another record-breaking flood. Uh, this, These floods have, of course, broken that record as well. Um, and that flood in 2010, as catastrophic as it was, was actually easier to manage because it was primarily glacial melt. So you could predict where the water was was coming from as it flowed um, north to south to the Arabian Sea. Um, in this case, um, it's not the same. We have uh, glacial melt actually happened after... Uh, rainfall, so the the scope was really overwhelming now you mentioned the government people are extremely um, angry at the government, especially in the province of Sindh, especially in the province of Balochistan, where where they don 't feel that their representatives um, are actually their representatives. Um, many people in Pakistan, our democratic system um, is is unfortunately quite uh, faulty. people are, are are intimidated into voting. Uh, for ruling parties, and people who have voted for these parties are not seeing their representatives. So people are being very vocally uh, angry and against them. In terms of NGOs, um, there is definitely a very large presence of NGOs, but they themselves are spread very thin. You have organizations such as Legal Aid Society, which is in fact what it says, a legal aid society, uh, is going from legal work to uh, to going on boats and distributing rations or food to people who cannot be accessed. And there's also a law in Pakistan which limits uh, NGOs and has actually banned um, several NGOs. So a lot of NGOs that might be able to take up uh, the labor of doing this, um, have not been able to. It may One shock angel- people
0: to know that there's more glacial ice, more glaciers in Pakistan than any place on Earth outside of the polar yeah. region. And in yeah. 10 seconds, Zulfikar, if you could comment on your being critical of the IMF for bankrolling massive dams and uh, barrages that have broken uh, during this flooding.
8: Um, you know, as you said, the glaciers are Pakistan's water storage, and uh, there's been this idea that water should not go to the sea. But what happens when water does not go to the sea is that it does not reach the people of the sea. And the first climate refugees in Pakistan were, in fact, those in the 1960s who had to flee the delta Five when it dried when, the IMF, when the IMF built a Kotri barrage. So, the IMF has been responsible for a great deal of our work. we have
0: to end it there. I thank you so much for being with us. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermin Sheikh.